0: Hello and welcome to Adamant Eve on CJSR 88.5 FM in Edmonton and around the world on CJSR.com. My name is Michelle Dang and I'll be your host for today's episode. Thanks for tuning in. Adamant Eve is Edmonton's only feminist news radio show. We are adamant on highlighting, discussing and engaging with issues that affect women across Edmonton and around the world. In this week's episode, Adam and Eve contributors Autumn Morinchuk, Rose Eva Forbes jenkins and Wen Chan have a roundtable discussion on cancel culture and accountability. With the prevalence of cancel culture online, they discuss the implications of what cancelling can do, not only towards celebrities, but community members as well. They talk about how there is often a lack of accountability in cancel culture, and how shifting towards fostering a culture of accountability and community care can be an integral part towards building more generative relationships and communities. Let's take a listen.
1: My name is Rose Eva Forbes Jenkins. I use she, her pronouns. I've been a producer here at Adam and Eve since 2013. Um, Yeah, I'm really excited to talk about accountability and cancel culture today because I think that is something that's come up a lot. We've had lots of really interesting discussions about it. So I'm excited to talk about it more and kind of how that works on like the bigger level as well as like our personal level as well.
2: I'm Autumn Morinchuk. I use she, her pronouns, and I've been a contributor on Adam and Eve since the beginning of this year. And I'm also really excited to talk about kind of cancel culture and accountability. I think that cancel culture is a word that's kind of being thrown around a lot recently in, in the media and stuff. And I think it's going to be really cool to kind of talk about. What it means to different groups of people, what it means to us and kind of have the conversation about the purpose of cancel culture and who is it benefiting.
3: Hi, my name is Wen Chan. I use she, her, or they, them pronouns. I am really excited to talk about accountability. I recently um, attended a webinar for, with Mia Mingus on transformative justice and I see a lot of kind of oppositions and connections and ways we can do this better with supporting people to be accountable. I feel like there's a big surge of talking about accountability without actually exploring intentional and meaningful ways about what that actually looks like in our own communities interpersonally and even more of a problem organizationally and with people with a lot of power.
1: First off, when I didn't know you attended the Mia Mingus um, webinar, that's super red. So I'm really curious to know um, what kind of your takeaways were from that event.
3: It was so awesome. I've, I've had some experience doing restorative justice work with youth before, and I've always felt like it was doing something, but it wasn't doing enough. So, yeah, I found Mia Mingus a while ago and... She does awesome work around disability justice and transformative justice. And one thing I really took away was just a few language pieces of how holding someone accountable versus supporting someone to be accountable. I think that's something that like, was like a light bulb in my head because no one wants to be held responsible. And like, we talked a lot about community accountability and what that looks like both individually and collectively, in like a preventive way, and in a political transformative way.
1: That's really rad. I've never heard about um, supporting someone being accountable. But yeah, when you said it, I was like, that's a really uh, nice distinction. Because yeah, like holding someone accountable, it's like, yeah, they're like in the wrong, where supporting someone is like, oh, we're supporting you through this. Like,
3: yeah, like there's needs that the person who did the harm has to have in order to make things better while also um, centering the person who was harmed. I think like we often give up on a lot of people who harm, but we have to not give up on each other.
1: Awesome. So I just wanted to talk more about the term cancel culture, and I think there's a lot of different variations of what this can mean. One thing that's been a lot of a huge topic of conversation, unfortunately, is everybody's least favorite by now fantasy author, uh, or she should be your least favorite. So uh, J.K. Rowling, unfortunately, has decided to use her powers for the forces of evil. And one of these things that she's done is published in Harper's Magazine on July 7th, 2020, a letter on justice and open debate. Uh, I say this in quotation marks. It was signed by a lot of big authors, Margaret Atwood, uh, Malcolm Gladwell, Noam Chomsky. So this group of people have signed this letter where they kind of talk about how essentially cancel culture has gone too far. So I'm quoting the letter here. The free exchange of information and ideas, the lifeblood of a liberal society is becoming more constricted. Well, we have come to expect this on the radical right, Censoriousness is also spreading more widely in our culture, an intolerance of opposing views, a vogue for public shaming and ostracism, and the tendency to dissolve complex policy issues in a blinding moral certainty. We uphold the values of robust and even caustic counter speech from all quarters. But it is now all too common to hear calls for swift and severe retribution in response to perceived transgressions of speech and thought. More troubling still institutional leaders in a spirit of panicked damage control are delivering hasty and disproportionate punishments instead of considered reforms. So it's kind of that idea of what we're talking about about accountability and uh, justice, but people feeling like that justice isn't being served in the right ways the word censor
3: and the right to free speech really sticks out to me. Saying harmful stuff does not mean that um, you're free from those consequences.
2: Yeah, I totally agree. I think that if you kind of are willing to say the stuff, you also have to be willing to um, hear what other people, you know, are going to say about it or what their thoughts or feelings are. And I think to cancel culture... I kind of think about it as like boycotting somebody, or sort of like, you know, deciding that you're not gonna uh, maybe buy that person's products or listen to that person's music or you know things like that because you disagree with maybe their ideas or their behaviors. And I think for a lot of people, um, they also kind of see cancel culture as a way of publicly shaming somebody who has done something that they uh, believe is is wrong or harmful to others.
3: It's such a reactive and individual centered approach to to addressing harm without actually delving into how this person benefits from oppressive systems.
1: Yeah, I think it's really important to distinguish like cancel culture from accountability. JK Rowling is purposely chosen to take these violent actions against trans people. So when people are trying to hold JK Rowling accountable for her actions and saying, what you're doing is not okay and boycotting her kind of on a personal level and she's taking this as a personal attack when it's actually people standing up for trans folks rights.
2: Yeah I totally agree and I think that there's also a way to uh, boycott uh, products from celebrities in a way that could be more helpful or maybe it's about educating you know if you're boycotting it you know maybe educate your friends as to why they shouldn't give money to this specific celebrity you know to not allow them to, to continue these things and I think There's ways to enact kind of canceling someone or more so boycotting someone in a way that's more proactive or beneficial as opposed to just like slamming them on Twitter or something, which like, yeah, like when you're publicly shaming someone, I just don't know exactly what that will accomplish in terms of standing up for the people who are being harmed.
1: So, for example, an image was being shared on Twitter of uh, a bookstore that had these books on display, and they said, oh, don't want to read J.K. Rowling? Here are some other sci-fi authors that you can get into instead. Just slamming J.K. Rowling as a bookstore uh, might not get you anywhere, but suggesting other books uh, from other authors that people could get into instead is leading folks to a a positive conclusion, to finding what they do like, instead of making people feel shame of, oh, you like J.K. Rowling? Well, it's because you're a bad person. Like, even if no one buys
3: J.K. Rowling's book, she is still making that money. But it's like looking at the publishers, looking at the bookstores who are buying these books, and what are they doing? There's systems and a culture in place, which has permitted her to gain power from maintaining these beliefs and using her platform to, like, produce and solidify her turfness, I guess.
1: Yeah, uh, TERF means trans-exclusionary radical feminist. We do also have to look about the our own history in terms of feminism, like there was a history of um, anti-transness within feminism. I think it's really important that uh, we acknowledge that history and we think about our own ways to uh, move forward with that, um, how we were providing support for trans women and what are we doing for them. Yeah, I think it's also important to look at the way that boycotting a celebrity is different than canceling or boycotting someone in your community. Would I decide, I don't wanna listen to Drake anymore because he was found uh, talking to Millie Bobby Brown and she's 17 and he's a lot older and that's really weird. Uh, I'm not gonna buy his music. I'm gonna boycott him on a personal level. Well, that's not gonna hurt Drake. Drake is gonna be fine. However, when we cancel people in our communities, we really have to think about what is that impact going to look like on them? A really interesting example was uh, Gwen Benaway, who's a trans author. So what happened was a group of Indigenous authors uh, wrote a letter, the letter writers being Alicia Elliott, Therese Nayo, Nazba Tom, Joshua Whitehead, and Tyler Pennock. So they penned themselves as kind of You know, we're a collective of people and we want to uh, write this public letter and um, ask questions about Gwen's Indigenous claims because uh, Gwen is currently on these Indigenous scholarships at the universities that she's uh, working at. So this uh, letter starts off with, we are Indigenous writers from different communities and intersections of identity who care deeply for our kin, our people, and the artists we create and collaborate with. When someone takes advantage of our generosity and goodwill, it's impossible to ignore. It is especially hurtful when that betrayal is nested within the ignorance of larger society and their institutions. With that in mind, we want to begin by urging non-Indigenous people who may be reading this to be mindful of their ignorance regarding our kinship systems and to therefore be sensitive to the nature of the contents of this letter. We would rather not be having these sorts of conversations in front of you, but it has become clear that we have no choice. What's more, there needs to be an accountability from non-Indigenous people, organizations and institutions who support Indigenous artists and writers. Literary agents, publishers, literary festivals, bookstores, libraries and universities and readers need to be mindful as they read this letter that they are often in positions to offer non-Indigenous people platforms to benefit from Indigenous communities in ways they should not. We need you to listen right now while Indigenous people lead these conversations. We also want to urge our Indigenous kin to be wary of the ways that unconscious bias may come to mind and skew the way you react to the contents of this letter. Please try to read with a good mind and really think through whether your immediate reaction is going to laterally harm other community members. Finally, we want to caution anyone who may have connections to anyone mentioned in this letter from jumping to protect the people they care for without first reading and reflecting on the facts presented within this letter. We are well aware of how these types of conversations have been used to harm our people in the past. So we hope everyone who reads this is mindful of how to speak about this issue. And how they behave once they have finished reading this letter. Everyone deserves to be treated with dignity and respect, even those who have caused significant harm. We are asking for accountability regarding Gwen Benoe's identity, people, and privilege. And then they end the letter by saying, This is the first step to healing our communities and repairing harm. We sincerely hope that Gwen will take that step with us, with love and solidarity to our Indigenous kin it's
3: super important to recognize that when you cancel someone in your community, it can result in a lot of violence on them when you remove them from resources and people they rely on to survive. And yeah, that like lateral harm, I feel like accountability in our community happens in relationship with each other. We can't just cut someone off and expect them to be accountable without recognizing their ties and the ways that we can help support them through this
2: process. Yeah, I agree. And I think that situation and that letter is a great example of what you were talking about earlier when with like the language around accountability. And I feel like this is about supporting someone to be accountable. And it's about supporting that person to also understand kind of how their actions have affected uh, these other individuals in the community and talking about harm and things like that. And I think that it was a really beautiful way to go about it in, in writing this letter. And I feel like it came or it came from a good place. The people writing the letter, it didn't seem like it was supposed to be, you know, an attack or a shaming, which I think can sometimes happen when you kind of cancel someone like we were talking about. I think it seems to come from a place of wanting to just support an individual to to be accountable, which I think is really important I think unfortunately when we're doing these sort of things online there's a real danger of it going too far when you do end up shaming someone or canceling someone where people online say things you know that maybe they wouldn't say in real life that can be harmful to that person and even though that person has caused harm I don't believe that they then should become a target for harassment you know or things like that that could be damaging to them um you know like this particular person is a trans woman as well like trans women are already at risk for violence and so uh i would hope that in the situation it's more about supporting that person to be accountable instead of them ending up being more harmed
1: and i think this uh the letter does a really good job of looking at these larger systems and how that impacts us on an individual level. The line that really stood out to me a lot is that um, everyone deserves to be treated with dignity and respect, even those who may have caused significant harm. And I think when we um, have cancel culture, if we're just excluding people, well, are we really treating people the way we would want to be treated? If we have caused harm, would we want to be met with understanding and compassion or would we want to be met with just shame? Hmm. I think that
3: really ties to like community care. I think it speaks to the roles we kind of hold to um, accountability in that sense. When someone does harm, like no one enters into into harming someone by doing it the first time. It's like learned, and like many people who harm were victims or survivors of something themselves. So looking beyond that, how are we complicit in this all? How do we maintain violence from happening and that looks different for every situation which is
1: yeah it's super exhausting work. Well, you just said when about it being exhausting. I think that's why a lot of the times, you know, cancel culture is easier. It's easier to just say, oh, you did this bad thing, I'm going to write you off. Um, But what's a lot harder is to really like meet that person with compassion and care. I think also looking at examples of how that work looks like, you know, I think that really kind of ties back to a lot of conversations that were happening over the summer about police brutality and, you know, that are continuing to happen now about, you know how do we move away from a justice system of police brutality that is so violent and harmful and move into um restorative justice and like looking at ways that that's possible if we really talk about examples of how that can look like and give people scenarios and give um you know folks a pathway to um what that can look like i think it's a lot easier for folks to then understand that this is a possibility
2: yeah i really Agree with that. I think that um, there's lots of examples out there of how, where you know, there's lots of organizations where they, you know, that policing looks very different and it's done within the community and it's done with a lot of support. I think there's a lot of ways to go about, you know, quote unquote policing that don't involve necessarily like the real police being there or you know, violence and things like that. And I think it's really important showing examples because I think so many times um, you see those big headlines, right, of like. You know, defining the police or this or that, and it seems like very scary at first because we're so conditioned to just like this is the way things are. We don't want them to change. Um, but I think even though making things change is exhaustive work, and, and um, building up our communities can be exhaustive work. Like we all agree, it's really important to keep doing it.
3: Mm-hmm. Like humanizing all aspects of of what taking accountability would look like. Let's say your brother did something really horrible. Maybe the best person to have been doing that work in the first place to to have prevented that from happening was you and your family involved, your community
1: who was connected to your brother. If you know someone who's caused harm and you know them the best, you might be one of the best people to then, you know, enact that restorative justice because uh, you have that connection with them. And I think that like, our restorative justice has to come through relationships and connections, because uh, if, you know, someone from the outside comes and tries to hold you accountable, but you don't have a relationship with that person, that can be really scary, and it might not work the best for us. if it's someone who, you know, you're closest and you have that relationship, you can really have those deep conversations on why what you're doing is wrong, and have that learning take
2: place. I think sometimes taking accountability can be scary, and I think it's really easy um, for lots of people just as humans to kind of put our guard up if we feel like we're being kind of attacked or we feel like we're being told what we did was wrong. I don't think that's ever a good feeling, but I think um, if you have people that have those relationships with you, who can approach you in a way that is more kind of, you know, restorative transformative, that you might be able to let your guard down a little bit more and you might be able to, you know, be supported and being accountable where, it's in a way that is more productive and more positive as opposed to like, you're, you're not feeling as attacked. So you might be able to, you know, kind of grow and hopefully learn so that you're not continuing to harm other people.
3: Yeah, I'm thinking back to the Mia Mingus webinar. She talked about the work from Mimi Kim on the ways we can intervene when we see these small things happen. So like we all have a stake in accountability usually we can intervene earlier and reduce that severity of the violence and even prevent it from happening in the first place if we if we are accountable to each other as people in relationship with each other.
1: And I really appreciate when um, being held accountable because you know it means that that person trusts me and that that person Uh, is invested in my future. So for me, accountability also comes from a place of caring. I think that's the first place where accountability starts is within our own relationships.
3: None of us are going to be perfect. We're all going to do harm in some way to each other. Um, That's part of being a human, I guess. One thing I'm thinking about now is how I think Mia Mingus said accountability is like pointing out someone has something stuck in their teeth. Like, it should be something that we thank the other person for bringing up when it does happen.
2: Yeah, I think that's so true. And I think that um, we should approach kind of supporting people to be accountable and, and kind of being accountable yourself as it's like a learning process. You know, that's what I think about kind of similar to what you were saying, Roseva, where if someone comes to me and says like, hey, you know, like this this wasn't cool or this, this was harmful, I try to take that as like, okay, this this person's taking the time to tell me that, which I have to appreciate, and that it's also about, okay, this is a learning experience for me. I can now learn from what happened, and I can grow and, and you know, be, you know, accountable in the future, and I mean, I think, I guess speaking just personally, but I think most people don't want to be harming other people in your community or otherwise. I don't think a lot of people seek out other people to harm. I think a lot of the time it just comes from perhaps being like ignorant to certain situations and so I think it's important to treat that as a learning experience.
1: And it's kind of about, you know, you may not have intended to harm someone but in the end it's about the impact that it had on the person that you harmed. So, you know, even if you didn't mean to or that wasn't your intention, at the end of the day it's about centering, you know, the harm that you caused to that person and how you can make sure that you don't do that again.
2: Yeah, and I think that really comes down to, um, if someone comes to you and says like like you know what you said or what you did was hurtful it's important just to accept that and be like whoa my bad instead of or i think a lot of times you have people turn around and go no like you know like that's not what i meant so it's like kind of your own fault if you were hurt by what i said or what i did so i think it's important to also realize that you just have to be open and accepting of that person's experience because it's not like you can't really you know judge for that person whether or not they should have been hurt and i think it's important to be able to like feel safe to have those conversations so that you know everyone is feeling the best that they can in the community.
1: Yeah, and I think that safety piece is also important because like there are some people that I'm not gonna feel safe to do that to. So like, you know, if a random dude is gonna yell at me from a car, I'm not gonna be like, hey sir, uh you should stop so we can have a conversation about accountability because I would like accountable for your actions. Like, no, if it's not a safe environment to do so, like don't put yourself in harm's way. And I think that
3: speaks to community care. Like even if someone cat calls you, for me, I'm, I feel too, too scared to like confront that person, but there's people in the card that could pick that out and intervene and have that conversation with that person. So again, it's about like how we can as a community step up and and recognize first of all, like what that harm is, and like put a stop to it when you see it, or at least bring up those concerns. The people closest to us, those are the ones that we have those ties with, and I think it's an obligation and a responsibility for each of
1: us to um, look at the ways we feel safe in stepping up. Accountability is also something that you you learn how to do it. So, like we said, talk about accountability to our own personal relationships and then once we have more practice or once we're more used to it we can then you know hold our systems and uh institutions accountable
3: yeah it's like meeting the immediate needs that are there that we can respond to while not like undermining those long-term goals of um systemic change within government within Organizations, our healthcare, our school systems, everything that impacts systemic violence from happening. It's like not a checkbox that we just one day become accountable in every single way. It's like a continual practice of learning from our mistakes and also of things that do work. I'm thinking like about how none of us, at least the people I know, are really taught on how to talk in vulnerable ways and not be defensive in a lot of cases. Like the ways we have a culture based on like perfectionism and doing everything right all the time makes it really hard for people to engage in these conversations um, and take responsibility for the harm that they do.
2: What you said is so true when we're, I mean, being vulnerable and admitting to a mistake is definitely really scary. And I think that comes from, you know, wanting to be perfect all the time. And we do live in that kind of society. I, I think about just speaking from the experience of a student, I have strived so hard to be perfect in every single, you know, kind of aspect of my life. It can be really difficult if someone tells you like, "Oh, no, you made a mistake there. I think that it's really important to be able to be vulnerable and be able to listen and learn from that. And I think it's definitely difficult.
1: Because we want to be as generative as we're talking about, we could talk about different authors to read instead. Uh, so, for example, um, an Indigenous trans writer that is currently living in Vancouver is Jay Simpson, and their book is called It Was Never Going to Be OK. Definitely check that out. Yeah,
3: for me, I just um, listened to Dean Spade's uh, Trans Politics in a Neoliberal Landscape, his lecture on that. Um, it's available on Vimeo, and I think it's also a book. Um, that was really great in contextualizing a lot of things impacting trans people.
2: There's a movie on Netflix documentary that's called Disclosure: Trans Lives on Screen. Um, that's really interesting that talks about uh, talks with many different trans actors and people in Hollywood just about Hollywood's depiction of transgendered people kind of throughout the years and how that has impacted the trans community, and it's uh, really interesting and I recommend that if you have Netflix you give it a watch. You're listening to Adam and Eve on CJSR
0: 88.5 FM, I'm your host Michelle Dang. You just heard a conversation between Autumn Morinchak, Rose Eva Forbes Jenkins, and Wen Chan on cancel culture and accountability. We know that words have power, and JK Rowling's harmful statements contribute to the rising transphobia in societies, and particularly in the UK. For example, just last year, it was reported that transphobic hate crimes increased by 81% in the UK. For more information, we recommend following some amazing trans activists in the UK on social media, such as Monroe Bergdoff and Travis Alablanza. We also recommend that you read the full collective call to Gwen Benaway, which you can find by googling Gwen Benaway Letter. That brings us to the end of this week's episode of Adamant Eve. We produce this week's show in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, on Treaty 6 territory. Thank you very much to all the Adam and Eve contributors involved in the making of this episode. Adam and Eve is a spoken word project of CGSR 88.5 FM in Edmonton, Alberta, and our journalism is funded by you, the listeners. You can contact us on our Facebook at Adam and Eve or email us at art at gmail.com if you want to send us any feedback or get involved in radio production. We're always happy to have more feminist hands on deck. Thank you very much for tuning in. I've been your host, Michelle Dang. Have an adamant evening.